Hey everyone, this is Chad. I'm the founder and CEO of Mission.org and the host of Mission Daily, the number one podcast for accelerated learning. Mission Daily was recently selected as best of 2018 by Apple for a reason. In every single episode, you're going to learn actionable strategies that you can apply to your life to become healthier, wealthier, and wiser. Welcome to another episode of the Mission Daily. If your imagination is your future, and if learning to build and develop your imagination is one of the most crucial skills to a healthy and successful life, then you're gonna to wanna to tune in to today's episode. Today's guest is Beth Comstock. So Beth has been the CMO or Chief Marketing Officer of General Electric for almost three decades. Uh, in addition to her role as CMO, she was also the Vice Chair of Innovation where she led efforts in clean energy and investments across many different business units at GE. In addition to all that, she's on the board of Nike. And during her time at NBC Universal, she did many, many things in media and new media, including she was one of the early financiers and almost a co-founder of Hulu.com. So today's episode is amazing. There are a lot of insights, a lot of lessons from Beth's career that you can apply to your own. And in addition to that, Beth has a new book out. It's called Imagine It Forward. And it's an excellent read for anyone who wants a practical guide to dealing with all the uncertainty in the world of business. Enjoy. Beth, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks. It's great to be here. I appreciate the opportunity. Where are you calling in from today? Uh, I'm in New York City right now. Oh, awesome. I'm actually ready to get on a plane and head out to New York tomorrow for we have a series of live interviews that we're doing for one of our podcasts, so I'll be out there soon. How long have you lived in New York? I've lived here for the better part, I don't know, at least 20 years. I grew up in Virginia, but I think I consider myself a New Yorker now. I've lived here long enough. Make sure you bundle up. It's cold. <laughs> that's uh, what I've heard, and um, my past experience suggests that that's the way to go. So how does one become a New Yorker? What is that process like? Does anybody come and uh, vet you, or do you just decide at a certain point you know what, I'm so tough that I am now a New Yorker. How's that work? Yeah, it's more the latter. You just, you kind of, yeah, you prove how gritty you are by, by the longer you stay, you get, you get a grit rating. So I think my grit rating is pretty high now. And it just means you can withstand just about anything. The grittier it is, the more you like it. I, um, for me, New York was small. I grew up in a small town. New York was even beyond what I could have imagined I'd be doing. But once I set my sights on New York, it was just uh, it was just something I had to be part of. I love the energy here. I love the intersections of um, of ideas and people. And so I I love being a New Yorker. That's really cool. I want to unpack one of the things you mentioned, which was grit. And you mentioned that you had set your sights on New York early on. How did that inspiration come about? And what were you doing when you started to think more about where you were going to be career wise and your aspirations and everything? What point of your life was that? Yeah, well, I um because I grew up in a small town. I think you know I ended up going when I got out of college. I went to Washington D.C. That was my definition of a big city, given where I grew up in Virginia. That was kind of close enough by. So, I think as I was as I got into my career, I just started to realize there were I, I worked. I wanted to be a journalist. I got into the communications area. I ended up working at NBC News uh, after a lot of struggle to get the get there. I was a junior publicist and. I had no idea what people did. I thought you were on camera and, behind, and maybe operating the camera. 
I just started to realize the amazing jobs that there were and that there was this whole other world waiting other places. And so New York just seemed like this next almost impossible step for me. I also, at that time, I was mid-20s, and I talk about it in the, in the book. I kind of picked a path. Uh, I, I was married, had a young, a young daughter, and I picked this path to go forward, to get a divorce, to go forward in my uh, sort of pursuing a career as a, as a single mother. And um, so I picked up and went to New York when it was very scary for me personally. I didn't, I didn't have family. I had a small, you know, opportunity with a job. And so to me, it meant, you know, kind of a whole new path forward. So it's always been meant reinvention to me. And you mentioned a small town in Virginia. Where'd you grow up? What town was that? Yeah, I grew up in a town called Winchester, Virginia. It's in the Shenandoah Valley. It's much bigger than it was when I grew up, but it's beautiful at the top of the Shenandoah Valley. I wasn't born there, but I lived there pretty much my whole life when I was growing up. My parents are still there. So you mentioned you were from a small town in Virginia, and I'm I'm really curious, were there any inspirations in terms of radio hosts, TV hosts, or anyone in media or marketing that you saw that maybe um, inspired you to start heading in that direction? What What were those early days like? Yeah, well, um, not really. We didn't have a television station. I think we, we had a radio station. But um, I, when I went to college, I had this epiphany that I thought I was, I was a biology major. I thought I was going to go to medical school. But what I really wanted to do was be a science journalist. And so my last year of college, I went to the College of William & Mary in three hours from my hometown. I worked in, I did an internship in public radio and it, it just opened my eyes to the possibility of, oh my gosh, I can't, I can't believe this world exists. It's similar to what I said about NBC, it just, these things I didn't know existed. And I, um, I remember one of my first stories I did, I mean, I worked with this amazing woman who, who really, I think they were desperate for content. So she was eager to have a, even an intern go out and do stuff. So she kitted me up. I went back to my hometown and uh, my parents lived near an apple orchard and it was apple season. And so there were a lot of migrant apple workers from Jamaica who were, were picking apples. And I remember I just went out with my microphone and started talking to them and found out they were singing songs that to kind of make the day go faster. And they just had these beautiful songs they were singing. And so I just stood there talking to them and capturing their songs kind of while they worked. And I was... I was like, okay, this is something I love. And so that was really the uh, kind of the storytelling awakening for me. Those moments that happen in person, I feel like are pretty underrated in terms of business news or podcasts or people in the media. I feel like those aren't really celebrated enough. Was that like a turning point in your life? Or did you feel like that after that, the world kind of opened up to you? Or how, how did that moment shape your trajectory in your career? It did. It just, I, I, one, I, at that moment, I was really aware of tapping into my curiosity and just kind of see where it would take me. The power of story. I mean, this was at a time, it was a small public radio station. They didn't have a big budget. I mean, it was a while ago, but even then this, they still had audio on like physical audio. You'd have to splice it with a razor blade. So I think the (laughs) the craftsmanship of it also struck me just how, how hard and the links that people went to, to tell a story. So I think that really had an impression on me. Wow. And also earlier on, you mentioned that when you did make the jump to New York, it wasn't exactly at the easiest moment of your life. And to whatever degree you feel comfortable, 
Can you share some of your experiences with, you know, going through a divorce, being a single mother, then moving into New York in this, you know, brand new world? I can't imagine what that was like. So, you know, what was that like for you? Well, uh, I was in my mid twenties, so I was still young and my career was just starting. I had just finally, after a lot of jobs I didn't like, I had finally gotten this job first as a junior publicist and then as a publicity manager. And that as soon as I joined within 18 months, the, they downsized and the department started as six people and it ended up being me. And then they downsized from there and said, the only jobs are going to be in New York. And so it was an opportunity, but it was very scary. I mean, I look back at it now and I think, you know, as an older person advising a younger person, I probably would have said, what are you crazy? You, you, don't, you don't have family there, you have a job. Okay, that's one good thing. But I actually referenced it in my book because it was a defining moment for me. It, I, I think, tested my character, tested my will to make things happen. There was no playbook. It's not like someone said, okay, Here's how you sure. get there. I mean, I remember driving my car up with my young daughter in the in the car seat and our car, you know, filled to the back with all this stuff. And, you know, we just, you just had to make it work. And so to me, it was a that kind of defining lesson of one, I felt I was charting my own course. I was moving forward and, and taking a huge risk, although I don't think I even appreciated then how huge the risk was, but I had no choice but to make it work. And so... I, I share that because I think we're all confronted with change, often change that uh, we don't make or that we don't want to make. And it's sometimes instructive to go back to those moments when you faced into something, either you didn't know how difficult it be it would be as, as that was with me, or it was incredibly difficult as that also was. And you, you go, but I did it. I, I didn't, I don't know how, but somehow I figured it out. So I find it's comforting to go back to those times and say, you see, you did it. You can do that again. So that was what that, that stands out to me as one of those kind of essential life lessons. I feel like moments like that are a reservoir where you go through them and just speaking personally from my own experiences, it seems like, you know, you can't endure anymore, but there's always extra gas or energy in the tank if you keep pushing, if you keep going. And later on, you can draw on those moments. And have you found that in your career that, you know, some of the most challenging moments give you energy later on or what's what's your experience been there? Yeah, I do. I, I, I guess w the one thing about me is that one, I, I don't shy away from hard work. Uh, that's also to say I don't, haven't always worked as smart as I could, but I know I've always worked incredibly hard to keep moving forward, to keep fighting for better. So, and as I put my book together, kind of reflections on the career I've had, I came to realize the struggle was often what I was attracted to, and it really made me. I think if you believe in a better way, if you have this core belief that tomorrow can be a better day and you have the power to make it so, which is sort of this one of my core beliefs, philosophies, then sometimes the struggle is what you have to go through to get to that better place. So that's just, that, that's just something I've practiced as a, in the course of my career and my, and my life. That is... Yeah, very, very inspiring. You mentioned book. Imagine It Forward is available now. It came out in September. How was that experience writing the book for you? And yeah, what was your thought process in writing the book? Why did you do it? 
Well, I did it um, for a couple of reasons. One, I, um, I spent most of my career navigating change, being, being somebody who kind of chased and tried to understand change, meet it early in the companies that I worked in, something of a change maker. And it's a, it's a hard road. It's messy. There are moments of joy, but it's a struggle. I wanted to document the messiness of it. Change management seems like, as often referred to, certainly in business books and business school is kind of a very you know clean, orderly process. Step one, two, three, and then everybody changes. Well, as somebody who's lived that, it's not true. And I wanted to document and share the messiness. I especially wanted to target people mid to early career and kind of take myself back to those days you were just asking about. Times when, you know, uh, these are the lessons I learned. This was the encouragement I could have used. These are the tools and applications that I had to figure out and kind of offer them as maybe some inspiration and encouragement for people going forward. And when you first got things really rolling in New York, you mentioned that you're, you were a change maker and your career, your successes definitely exemplify that. But change makers and marketers and CMOs, when they do make change, I mean, it's not always welcome. Can you maybe share a story about some of the pushback you received when you tried to implement or sell an existing organization on the change that you saw? How, how did you sell your vision, basically? Well, I, um, I think I learned painfully that the best way you sell a vision is it isn't, it's not just about your vision. You need to kind of create a small groundswell, a movement, if you will, of other people who see the opportunity and, and want to join. And I, I guess I'd say, I'll, I'll highlight two examples. I'll, I'll do one quickly, but in our quest when I was at GE to forge a clean tech future, we, we saw some trends. We, we, we took, I felt our job was to take marketing very seriously, to make it about living in the market. And when you do that, you start to see trends, you see where change is happening. And we started picking up trends of clean tech coming to industry and it was not a very popular perspective in a company that was you know centralized fossil fuel production and so people often don't want to hear about it they can't imagine that that's ever going to be real it seems quite frivolous and so that was a really early um early kind of mid-career example of something where I just, you know, working with a team of people, we just immersed ourselves enough in the market, talked to enough customers, we saw the opportunity. So it made us more confident that we could see that unfolding. And then we had to go to work to allow our colleagues to see it, to take them and do dreaming sessions with customers, imagine a future driven by solar and wind. And you have to be willing to kind of wallow in, in the change and bring others with you. In face of people saying, you're crazy, this is never going to happen, you're not an expert in this, you don't know what you're talking about. And you mentioned people you know, challenging you, saying you're crazy. I think many people that listen to this podcast are going to be wondering, how do you deal with that or how did you deal with that when the people saying you're crazy or kind of like giving you a hard time are your bosses or have been in the company for much longer than you? What's your philosophy there? Yeah, well, that happens a lot. I mean, it's pretty rare that you never get told no. Early in my career, you know, back when I told you I first moved to New York, I, I actually had a boss that I, I left, ended up leaving NBC the first time because I thought he was really a, what I call a gatekeeper. He was somebody who didn't encourage new ideas, wouldn't let anyone through the gates. And um, I got frustrated and, and left. What I realized when I went to other jobs was that there are gatekeepers everywhere. 
Sometimes you report to them, they're your manager, sometimes they're your colleagues, sometimes maybe it's even in your head. And you just don't want to change the way you're doing things. I had to realize there are gatekeepers everywhere. And I, okay, I could, it was a test. If I got told no, it was a bit of a test to me. Do you believe in this? Is that an yeah. idea you want to pursue? Okay, what are you going to do? You're going to, I had to adopt a mindset that said, okay, no, huh? To me, I'm hearing that is not yet. I got to find right. another way in. I got to go. And so it, it really became a test of passion, a test of persistence, and to try to keep going back. And often like the first time you ask something or you propose something, maybe your idea is not that clear. Maybe the right. story's not really good yet. And so the no is a bit of a test and it challenges you to make it better. But I had to learn that in a very painful way. So that's, that's what I would encourage. I mean, do you really believe in it? Is there a different way to come back? Does the no really mean not yet? Can you ask for feedback? Can you ask what it would take to make it a better idea? What homework you need to do? Those are the things I think you have to learn to do. I love that. And so you were named as GE's first CMO in what I think was, they hadn't had a CMO in something like 20 years. Could you share a little bit about how you created that role and landed it or basically how, how it came about. Yeah. So I, um, I had grown up in NBC. NBC was owned by GE. I ended up going to GE. I, uh, came to work with Jeff Immelt, who was the new chief executive at, at GE after Jack Welch. And he had a vision for the company to grow from within to prioritize innovation. I had been doing advertising for the company and I'd had a chance to work for him. And I had taken some risks in the first year we worked together by bringing in some kind of weird, but in, in the end, effective consultants to challenge us. We came up with a new tagline. I took some risks that I think he thought were needed. And so in his mind, we needed to grow from within and he needed someone willing to take some risks. So he said, hey, I wanna, I wanna invest in marketing and I want you to be chief marketing officer. I remember at the time, AdAge wrote, she's the rare breed of marketing officer with no, form, with no marketing experience which was a little unfair, but kind of true, even right. though I grew up in media where it's a marketing business. And so, I, you know, there were strengths that brought me there, but I wasn't classically trained. So I just had to make it my business. I took the first 90 to 100 days of that assignment to just tap my curiosity, go to school, read every book I could, call up CMOs at other companies. I remember calling up recruiters saying, who are the best CMOs? Can you introduce me? I'd call up people like Jim Stengel, who was the CMO of P&G, and I'd say, can I ask you some questions? Can you, can you tutor me on things? And they were, most of them were very generous. I ended up hiring, helping our company hire a lot of people with classic marketing training. We created a marketing training program. So I had to recognize the things I didn't know and fill those gaps. So that's the approach I took. And I think it's really, for me, lead with your curiosity, accept what you don't know, and also, you know, lead with what you know as well. So it sounds like you entered the role with beginner's mind. And not only did you have beginner's mind, but you had a pretty objective analysis of where you were at in terms of shoring up your learning and getting mentorship and advice from the best. Oftentimes what stops people from asking for help or getting the training they need is maybe ego, or maybe they're just being stubborn. Are there any strategies that you use to get over that yourself and pick up the phone and ask for help? 
I'd say one, the, the, the strategies, I mean, it's intimidating. Let's first admit that, sure. right? I mean, yeah. I don't want you to sit here and think like, oh, it was so easy. I just called these people. I'm also uh, a reserved person. I'm shy. So it kind of takes me a little bit of extra energy to come uh, overcome those things. So I think you just have to one, uh, to me, it was tapping my curiosity. Okay, what can I learn from these people? It's not about me. It's not about me trying to prove how smart I am to them. What can I learn? And then also right. creating a bit of a value exchange. Like they help me and I have to be able to say, how can I help you in the future? I have to be open to offer to help them in return. So I think there's a value exchange in that. So I, I think, you know, you have to kind of tap this inquisitive mind and kind of get over that insecurity of, oh my gosh, they're going to think I'm an idiot. I don't have classic marketing training. They're, they're going to think less of me. I, it's not that I didn't think those things. I just couldn't let them define me. I had to kind of put them in a little box in my head and say, okay, I'm not, I'm not going to focus on that right now. Yeah. And so curiosity is something I think that's so important because you can't fake genuine curiosity. And the, in order to get it or get to a place where you're genuinely curious, you have to invest a lot of time into study, into research. It, was that something that you've always done as a part of your professional career? Have you always been a voracious reader? Or yeah, how did you go about picking up the necessary information to kind of fuel that curiosity? Well, partly I, I think I'm just a curious person. Um, that's often what I've used to overcome that shyness, that introversion. And I think it's just learning how to ask good questions. And, yeah. um, you know, just here's some of my favorite questions, you know, kind of not just what do you do? Why do you do it? What problem are you trying to solve? You know, understanding, I, I like asking people, what's your story? Where did you come from? Where are you going? Where are you going? What didn't work? Not just what did work. If you could do it again, what would you do differently? So I think just kind of shifting your mindset and your, you know, open your mind up to just be more inquisitive is a really good first step to being curious. So true. So recently, Harvard Business Review published an article that mentioned the average tenure for CMOs seems to be falling. There are a lot of people that are holding marketing positions right now that have a big idea for a campaign, an initiative or something that's new, wild, and untested that might have really big upside. How do you go about thinking about or planning a campaign? How do you think about risk-taking in marketing? Yeah, well, I am, I, I'd say one of the things that we, a model we really, we adopted that I highly recommend, and it was through a lot of trial and error, was um, to always have an experimental budget. I don't care Look, I worked for a big chunk of time at GE. We were a big brand, but we didn't have a big budget. And I think most people are surprised by that. But regardless of what the budget was, I tried to really fight to make sure whatever campaign we were going to do was one, ground and good strategy, and we can come back to that. But that sure. I always carved out, if I could, as much as 10 to 15% of our budget to kind of explore what's next and new and for experimental partnerships and ideas and new ways of working. So back to the strategic part, we were trying to convey a sense of innovation and it meant our work that the company was about innovation. We wanted to surprise people, to show up in unexpected places. Just because we were a business company calling on business customers didn't mean we could only show up as 
B2B or what I would call boring to boring. We had to surprise <laughs> people to break through. And so often to do that, it meant you had to take some risks and try things. And rather than risk a limited, all of our limited budget, we would start to test things with small producers, for example, when we'd tell our own stories with new media outlets. For example, in the early days when BuzzFeed was just starting, we, we would do a lot of experimentation with them in branded content. The platform hadn't grown as big then. They didn't have their model developed. And so they were willing to partner with us and use us as a kind of a development partner to then go and prove to other customers what was possible. So that's a lot of what I felt really worked. And it also meant we had to hire people who were at least in part okay with experimentation. We had to work with our ad agencies and our storytelling agencies to make sure they were open to experimentation. So I think that's a part of any campaign. Yes, you have to have a vision, you have to have strategy, you have to have a clear creative brief, but I think you have to have some room early on in the process to kind of test and learn what could work before you just go into it and put all your money uh, against it. Sure. And there are a lot of executives and business owners that listen to this podcast who are hiring. They're looking for people that not only have grit, but are comfortable running experiments and have an ability to be comfortable during what might be a very challenging experiment. When you're hiring, when you're working with people or hiring an agency or whatever the case is, how do you go about testing to see if that potential partner, new hire, or collaborator is willing to experiment? Is there anything you look for? Are there any uh, filtering mechanisms that you've developed? Yeah, well, I um, there's a couple. I mean, the best thing you can do is just try them out. So I think right. kind of limited runs, limited engagements. Again, like let's do a pilot. Let's do a small test in the, to some of the things I talked about. And not everyone was willing to do that. So that in itself was a kind of a test. Um, hmm, you're not willing to do that. Well, why should we have confidence that you can do it at a bigger scale? I like the idea of figure it out jobs. I think that was something I got more comfortable with as I progressed in my career, but just giving and figure it out assignments, just saying to people, here's the vision. Now you go figure it out. I don't know how to get there. That's why you're here. And you can kind of test people's tolerance for ambiguity. The other thing I think is really important, especially in creative work, you have to work really hard at a really good brief, um, yeah. a creative brief, which is really your strategy. What are we trying to accomplish? How will we know what good looks like? Yet give people a bit of a freedom within that framework. I really subscribe to a freedom within a framework way of working. So you're giving people kind of a, the frame. It can be thin or wide, but then you're saying, now you go figure it out and you're testing them a bit. But people who aren't comfortable with that, they're not, you know, maybe they're the people who you put more at the execution end of the campaign, the, the targeting or the metrics end. But I think in today's world, everybody needs, a, needs some room for experimentation and discovery. Very cool. And you mentioned frameworks. So when we're thinking about creating a book or a podcast or anything like that, there are a lot of existing frameworks, whether it's the hero's journey or the, you know, there's many story structures out there. When you're doing a creative brief or you're working with your team on it, are there any frameworks that you prefer that you've found to be really effective? Well, I think frameworks about creativity or frameworks about more campaigns. Would yeah, for, for, for campaigns or when you're developing an idea or maybe when you were writing the book, uh, Imagine It Forward. Yeah, how do you think about frameworks or 
outlining some constraints for your projects? Well, I guess that would be the first framework is just that you do need constraints. I think constraints make you more creative. So you're never going to have enough time, money, budget. So I think that's uh, that's a really good way to think about it. I like having deadlines. I think um, milestones are really important. So in writing this book, the same with putting a campaign together, if it's a if it's a traditional marketing campaign, um, I think you need to have a clear strategy uh, a why am I doing this so you have to you have to spend some time on understanding that vision that mission and this the, you know that that's got to be clear and then I think you have to sort of chunk it out you have to set certain milestones okay I'm going to get the outline done by here and then I'm going to just start in writing it and then I'm going to kind of give myself until this to get the first bit done so for me that's always how I've I've found just kind of milestones-based development. Um, right. Just because if you don't start, you're always just, you know, you're just going through it in your head. There's always a better way. And I am a serial iterator. So I also allow time to come back and iterate and edit and edit and edit. But I think the tension is always working against some kind of milestone or deadline. That, that would be one thing. And again, having, trying to set up some constraints, trying to see how fast something can happen, how little money you need to do it, just to get kind of the first pass of something. So I'm really big on this idea of like, a, you know, a, a minimally viable product just to get going. Wise words. And one of my favorite writers and directors is, he tells this story about one of the first movie sets that he was on where he was directing it. And the crew, the cast, they all didn't really view him as a senior director. They didn't call him Gov, which in industry parlance means, you know, you're an established director, we respect you. At what point in your career as CMO of GE did you feel like you were recognized and respected as the CMO? How long did that take? Was there a single campaign? Was it a track record of a couple years? How, how did that basically earning that title, how did that work? Well, I would say there even now, I mean, there, there was always doubt in my mind of, am I good enough? You know, th th there was always a bit of paranoia. I just, I'm right. a warrior. So I remember very vividly, there was a moment I was about six months into my, my role as chief marketing officer and Jeff Immelt called me into his office after a meeting and he was like, hey, look, what's up with you? I need you to be more confident. You're just, you're not showing up the way I need you to. What's up with you? Uh, and he was kind of like, look, I've backed you. Now you need to back yourself. I expect you to challenge things more. The stuff I've seen that puts you in this job, I'm not seeing right now. And so I was like, oh, yikes, he figured me out. I thought I was doing such a good, good job doing my best Meryl Streep. I, I got I to gotta be more, I, I want him accountable to him, but I got to show up in a different way. So yeah. I distinctly remember that as a time when I didn't feel that way. And then kind of fast forward, it was probably 18 months after that when we had launched Ecomagination, which was our clean tech effort. It, it, to what I said earlier, there was just a lot of people who hated the idea, thought it was stupid, thought we were going to embarrass ourselves. At one point, Jeff said to the New York Times, there were only two people in the company who thought it was a good idea. And I always say he met him and <laughs> me. And I'm always gl glad he was the other one. But after, in, in those days, it was so, it was good to have that confidence of him. But yeah. I didn't feel it yet. I just felt the doubt. But as each little bit of success, customers bought in media liked it, people responded well, sales were generated. It took a good 
18 months or so to get that. That was probably the first time I remember feeling, okay, we did this. I feel confident. I feel, I feel we're on the right, the right path, but there was still always doubt, always doubt. Do you feel, do you subscribe to Andy Grove's mantra that only the paranoid survive? Do you feel that's a, a good trait in leaders? How, how do you think about that? Because it sounds like, you know, you're not necessarily proud of being paranoid, but you recognize that it served you. How do you view paranoia in business? I think you have to have a healthy dose of paranoia. Yeah. Um, I don't think if it can paralyze you. If you're paranoid, then every, you know, you don't, you don't trust, which is essential. If you're paranoid, you don't believe everybody has, other people have good intent. But I think a healthy dose of that, at least of questioning, you know, really, you know, I think with, I would say it's a, maybe a bit more humility and kind of reality check of tell me what I don't want to hear. Give me feedback of things where I, not just the strengths, but what are things I need to consider to get better. So I, I think I'd look at that as a as a, maybe a bit more necessary than than the paranoia. Love it. So one more question about GE, and then I would love to move on to the founding of Hulu, which you were a part of, and then maybe if you can share some stories about your experiences being on the board of Nike. I think that's. And we're still skimming the surface of your career and all the different things you've worked on. If we were to take it back to GE and some of the marketing campaigns that you've done very recently, it's very clear that GE still has uh, a budget for experiments. And one of my favorite that you've run recently, I don't know if you were a part of it, was The Message, which was a sci-fi podcast that was branded content where GE was the sponsor. But I was almost shocked at how much of a backseat that GE took to that sponsorship. Is there anything you can share about that? Or maybe, you know, do you really defend that experimental budget at GE? How's your team think about that? Yeah, no, I, that was definitely part of our efforts. I was really proud of that work. And again, it was, it, that it was a phenomenal, it was a phenomenal piece. I, I don't, I'm like, my wife and I listened to that and I was thinking like, I know GE is famous for branded content, but this is the this is one of the best sci-fi stories I've heard in a long time from any author in any medium. So sorry, back to what you're saying. Well, no, thank you for that. And the team that put it together, it was, uh, it was Sam Olstein and Andy Goldberg at GE. And they, it was out of that experimental budget. It was out of our commitment to storytelling. And um, you know, the, the vision we had was we need to show up in unexpected ways to break through. And so you wouldn't expect GE to behind that kind of a mystery storytelling yet at the same time it was kind of a throwback because in the 50s and 60s GE had sponsored something called GE theater and yeah. so we love the idea that um, that that was kind of what's an old part of the company that we had always supported good storytelling how could we tell it in a new way so there was also a, a that part of the strategy about it it took a lot of experimentation and trying different folks and they just through, we we'd created a, what I like to call a farm team of creative people. Some worked at big agencies. Many were just independent producers or storytellers. By just getting to know and creating a network of creatives, they were able to tap in people who could do the storytelling. I mean, our team couldn't have done that on our own. We needed help. We needed creative partners. Yeah, that's very, very cool. So fast forward a little bit to the early days or early ideas that became Hulu. At what point did you start getting involved in that process? And what was your role in the founding of Hulu? 
So I, um, I was at NBC. It was kind of the last time I was at NBC. I had been at GE as CMO, did Ecoimagination, a, a big change initiative, and everyone was looking at digital disruption looming. And so they sent me back to NBC to lead digital disruption and digital media. So I came in there and uh, had to form a team that was trying to figure out where the world's going. And I take you back, that was just as YouTube was emerging on the scene and mm. the media people were equal parts fascinated, almost thought it was funny, you know, hey, cat's playing the piano on video and, and kind of scared, like, oh my gosh, like we don't know how to do that. So right. people were very anxiety ridden and um, I pulled the team together and we started mapping a digital future. And we, we made a lot of mistakes. We, we uh, acquired a, in a very expensive way, a women's online community and again, good strategy. But as often happens in companies, the sort of antibodies and, and, you know, kind of just trying to get new things going, we managed to just not make it work well. So it was not succeeding. And uh, at the same time, the folks at Fox, at News Corp, had had a similar path where they acquired MySpace. They had set out and virtually killed it uh, like we had done with iVillage. And so we were both still panicked about the arrival of digital media and feeling like we weren't able to do much ourselves. And so we said, we got to get together. We got to figure out how do we do this together? And based on our experience of not having a good track record of trying to do it ourselves, we knew we had to seed it outside the mothership. We needed an entrepreneur. We hired Jason Kyler out of Amazon to really found and create and run Hulu. So I was part of the team that seeded it, the champion for difference. I mean, really it was the classic challenger brand model where they mm -hmm. had to challenge the status quo. And people like me had to kind of keep the, the status quo from killing them, uh, <laughs> letting Jason go and grab whatever resources he needed to succeed and yet reject what didn't work. For example, we had uh, created at NBC this beautiful video player. It was fantastic. We spent a lot of money, but it had too many doodads and too many things around it. And, and we said, look, Jason, we saved you all this time and money. Use our video player. And he's like, that thing stinks. It looks like Tokyo lit, <laughs> lit up at night. And he had the ability to say, no, I'm not going to take that. So that's what was needed at that time was we needed a challenger, somebody who could kind of help make the future in a way that sometimes internally companies can't get out of their own way. That's so cool to hear the early days stories there. What did, you know, what led you to joining the board of Nike and what was that process like? And yeah, how'd you secure that? And what's that experience been like for you? The experience has been great. I've been on the Nike board um, nine years and I was one of the first people at GE to go on a public board. And so it was a bit of an experiment, but I, Nike had reached out to me. They were looking for people with digital backgrounds, obviously someone who understood marketing on a global scale. And so I was just always impressed with from afar with Nike's certainly a marketing machine, but I was impressed mm. with their innovation. And as somebody who was all about innovation, I wanted to learn more. And I think given the global nature of Nike and GE, there was actually a lot more in common than people might think, just some of the global challenges of global growth and innovation. Very cool. So Beth, Imagine It Forward is out now. Are there any more stories from the book that you'd like our listeners to know about? Or is there any story from the book that you can't get out of your head that you basically revisit or that keeps popping up time and time again? Well, I think there are a lot of stories. I, 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 part of what I try to do with the book is make it very personal. I took a bit of a risk by sharing very personal stories. 
And there are a lot of failures in the book. I, when I, you're talking about that time at, at NBC when we seeded Hulu and, yeah, and it ended up being a good outcome for, despite all of our best efforts. Um, but <laughs> that was an assignment for me that was very tough. I came back into a company that I had grown up in and they didn't see how I had changed. And I, and my colleagues who had worked with me before didn't appreciate some of the work I had done at GE and I was tasked with leading change. And I kind of lost perspective that became a bit tribal. It was kind of the new kids in digital versus the folks from broadcast who don't know what they're doing. And, and I think I just made it a lot harder for the change that had to happen for myself and for our teams. And I lost perspective. There, there's a line I have in the book. I mean, it, it, we, we started fighting and became tribal. Uh, people were out to get one another. And, and I could have done more to stop and listen to appreciate the humanity of the teams, to try to bring folks together, to not make it our change against their change. And I wasn't thriving in, in all parts of that job. I lost perspective. Um, it wasn't until I, was, until I was writing the book that I asked Jeff Immelt, who had been my boss through a lot of this, was there ever a time you thought of firing me? And he said, yeah, that time, <laughs> that time you were at NBC, you, you <laughs> lost perspective. And you got down in the weeds and you lost your perspective and you, you took it personally. So I write in the book, I sort of, it was like I jumped off the balcony into the mosh pit. I think that's important when you're navigating change. Yeah. You got to fight for what's right. You got to fight for the future, but you also have to collaborate with people. You have to see the humanity. You have to come together to figure out what problem you're trying to solve. Um, right. It shouldn't be teams against one another when you're fighting for the future, when you're fighting for disruption and I kind of got caught up in that sometimes. So getting caught up in tribalism or the mosh pit or anything like that's, that can happen to all of us. And arguably it, it happens does happen to, us. to all of us. Yeah. All the time. Are there any, is there any advice you would have for avoiding that or maybe calming the mosh pit down or kind of stopping tribalism before it metastasizes, you know, all throughout the organization? Try to remember you're all on the same team. You may have different silos, but I think always trying to reconnect around what problem are we trying to solve? Who's yeah. the customer, right? What, who's our customer? I love that Peter Drucker quote, without a customer, there's no business. What does it matter if it's marketing against sales or product against marketing? Without a customer, we're not going to go forward. So who's the customer? What problem are we trying to solve? Really here, inviting conflict it's important to not avoid the conflict. You also have to invite the conflict in, but a decision has to be made. If you're leading a team or someone else is leading it and a decision's made, you have to support it. Often when I was in that NBC environment, people would say, yeah, I'm behind you. And then they'd leave the room and go, I'm never going to support that. You know, that can't be allowed in a culture. And, and I think at the end, just remember people's humanity. I, I share in the book a couple, there was one leader I particularly had a tough time with and he with me and we lost sight of the humanity. We had, we had once been friends and, you know, invite somebody to coffee, make a yeah. joke about it. Like call the fight something silly. What if we'd called it jello and, you know, <laughs> and, and just try to give ourselves perspective. I think that's not to say you can't fight for a point of view. It's not to say you can't believe passionately in a, in a different way, but try to remember what problem you're trying to solve and what's the fastest way to get there. Love it. So Beth, you recently stepped down as CMO of GE 
And I'm sure that there are a number of different projects that you're working on now. Can you share a little bit about what you're up to now, how you divide your time and what you're most excited about? Well, in the past year, I left GE at the end of last year. I did my career, you know, sort of focusing on uh, market development and innovation. And I know a lot about entrepreneurism. And this year has been very entrepreneurial for me, putting out a book. I didn't realize how entrepreneurial it is. I mean, I had a great publisher, but a lot you have to do yourself. So it's been a year of, you talked earlier about a beginner's mind. I've had to learn things all over again. I launched five different websites until I found one that worked. I have made a lot of dead end things and had to put myself out there to promote myself in ways that make me feel very uncomfortable. So I, I've had to learn how to do things again. And I've had to remind myself I still have a hustle in me. And I, and so that's what my year has been like. But I, I end this year with that beginner's mindset. I'm setting off. I've got the book in the world. And now I'm off to kind of discover and try to take the experience I've had and kind of learn in new ways. And I'm going to re-enter business in a very different way. But first, I'm going to kind of wander around and discover some things that, that, that might interest me in a whole new way. So Beth, thank you so much for being generous with your time and best of luck as you continue to experiment, wander and explore. It's been a delight having you on and for everyone listening, we'll see you next time. Mission Daily and all of our podcasts are created with love by our team at mission.org. We own and operate a network of podcasts and a brand and story studio designed to accelerate learning. Our clients include companies like Salesforce, they're a customer times five, Twilio, and Katera, who work with us because we produce results. To learn more and get our case studies, check out mission.org studios. If you're tired of media and news that promotes fear, uncertainty, and doubt, and if you want an antidote to all that chaos, you're at the right place. Subscribe here and to our daily newsletter at mission.org. Each morning, you'll get a newsletter that will help you start your morning and your day off right. Hey, listeners, thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word, and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time.